everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, with me on Everyday Theology, I have... Uh, a fun guest. It's going to be fun for me. I don't know how many other people are going to find this conversation fun, but I'm kind of geeking out and nerding out in a way, but I hope everyone else finds it fun. But I have with me Dr. Uh, Nijay Gupta, who is the professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Uh, so thanks so much for being here with me. Hi, Aaron. Thanks. And you pronounced my name right, so you passed the first test already. Uh, you know, here's my little secret. I go to Google. Uh, sorry, not Google. I go to YouTube and I find someone else who is a like, are you saying your own name? And because I've screwed up way too many times <laughs> to yeah, not bravo, do that. Bravo, bravo, best practices. Um, hey, so why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Let them get to know a little about you and your journey into what we're going to talk about today with being, how do we talk about this word faith? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Um, so, uh, you know, fun, fun little beginning. Um, I'm from Ashland, Ohio. I'm not going to give you like cradle to now, but uh, Aaron, Aaron is in Ohio, in Ashland as uh, as well. Born and raised, um, and but I was not uh, born and raised here. You were so not born and raised weird, there. Weird connection here. Yeah. Um, and I uh, became a Christian in uh, high school, my teenage years. And um, I, I studied at Miami University of Ohio, uh, not to be confused with Florida. I studied a very interesting mixture of, um, I double majored in classics and uh, marketing. So huh. go figure. And I huh. found a way to use them both, which is kind of fun. Uh, and then I studied at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston area. Um, I, I met my wife there, Amy. Uh, we, we got married there. And then I did my PhD at the University of Durham in the UK, famous for two things at the time. One is N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Durham, which was one mm -hmm. of the reasons I went there. Very, very exciting yeah. uh, opportunity to hear him speak. Uh, on occasion at the cathedral. And then the other one, if you're not an anti right fan, is it was a Harry Potter filming site for uh, uh, the first two movies. So oh my if, gosh. Whenever, you see, whenever you see people walking between classes, they're in the Durham cloisters, which is kind of fun. Did There's you even try to fake cobwebs still there. To the campus or sneak <laughs> onto the, I, the recording? Uh, no, uh, sadly, they finished before I uh, uh, before I started studying there. But there's still fake walls because they had to cover some modern piping. So there's still huh. some fake walls that they uh, edifices they put up. But anyway, um, so uh, I've moved around, lived in a lot of different places: Boston, Philly, Seattle, uh, Ashland, uh, uh, New York. I live now in Portland, Oregon. I have three kids. Um, I teach New Testament, as you already mentioned, at Northern Seminary in Chicagoland. I teach a lot online. Um, in terms of just kind of getting to know me, I'm a coffee snob. My wife and I go to a different coffee shop almost every week in the Portland metro area, and we have a lot of fun with that. Um, I love cooking. I cook Asian food uh, a lot. I uh, make uh, food for the kids. They're home, they're home over the past year because of the <laughs> pandemic. So we eat a lot of food at home. And um, uh, 
I, I have electric bicycle if you want to talk about that. Um, and I, I, that's one of Those the Portland, Portland hipster kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I just started a podcast with my friend AJ Swoboda. Uh, it's called In Faith and Doubt. We talk about uh, hard and ugly things of Christianity and how we journey through them. So that's that's kind of the stuff that's keeping me busy. Oh, well, there's a new podcast for my list. Thanks. There you go. And now you both have been on my podcast, which is a great thing, right? right. Um, hey, so, well, first off, what kind of electric bike? Because that, that is something I care about, oddly. Yeah, uh, I think it's called a, a hikey, a hikey, and and it's it's um, pedal assist. Uh, that's yeah. that's the best way to explain it. Um, yeah, so as long as I'm not going like 30, 40 miles away, I like to hop on that. I am paranoid about someone stealing it because when I lived in Seattle, I had an electric bicycle and it got stolen. Um, so I try not to ride it and park it somewhere. So I'll just ride it around and and bring it into my office or something. But uh, uh, it's, it's for leisure more than for commuting. Well. Uh, as you know, Ashland, I'm thinking about getting one just for the area, but I don't know why, cause everything is five minutes just by yeah. walking. So, you know, <laughs> it'll just be for fun at that point. Hey, so, you know, one of the things, you know, I was introduced to your work as I'm finishing up my PhD on kind of a theology of faith and kind of a, a reconstructive theology of faith, looking at it again, but, you know, being a, a Pentecostal myself, there's no such thing as doing theology without the Bible. Um, and so right. your work uh, came to the forefront as part of a discussion that I've noticed a trend, and maybe you've noticed this trend too, especially because you are more on the forefront than even I, that more and more we're recognizing the need to yet again talk about what this word faith is because our definitions, our ways of understanding it have fallen flat or kind of have not been good metaphors for the way that we think about what this word is. And particularly, of course, you talked about that through the person and the works of Paul. So maybe if you can start out even just what got you interested into that conversation and then why you felt the need to also look at it again and say, what is Paul doing when he uses this term? Yeah, that's a good question, Aaron, because um, you might think a, a big word like faith in Greek pistis has been studied to death and therefore right. why write another book on it? It's kind of like justification or works of the law or grace. Aren't there a trillion books on it? And what I noticed is um, you know, singular books devoted to the subject written in the last 50, 60, 70 years, there aren't a ton of them that are just talking about the concept of faith. But I'll tell you how it kind of rose to my attention as a topic of interest on both the popular end and then the academic end. So on the popular end, um, as I'm teaching classes, I used to teach undergraduate and students would, I'd notice they'd use the word faith as if it meant opinion without mm -hmm. evidence. Yep. And so if someone challenged them on the resurrection, they'd say, well, I just believe it by faith, which means I don't have evidence. It's just a belief I have, and I don't have to defend it if I use this word faith. And then I thought to myself, okay, Paul actually writes these really long letters because he thinks there's logic and evidence behind oh, the things right. he's saying. So even though he talks about faith a lot, he's not just using it as some trump card against having a conversation yeah. or talking about reason and logic. Definitely that rise the, of fideism, right? Fideism, right. whatever uh, we use that word. 
And so popularly, there's a misunderstanding on what faith means. And then you have sort of the aphorisms and popular things on just kind of blind faith. And um, Mm -hmm. if you just believe as if um, (laughs) kind of believing in yourself, is this kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, and, And on the extreme of some traditions, you have this idea that if you have enough faith, which may is this magic substance, then you can heal yourself or you can, you know, you know, be, be a millionaire or whatever it is. Uh, faith seems like this magic ingredient to get whatever you want from the genie uh, out yeah. of the bottle. And th- that didn't seem to, to resonate with Paul to me. <laughs> no. um, but then on the academic end, um, I was noticing that scholars have been talking about Paul's use of pistis, which is again, the Greek word for faith. And there's been this kind of move to an extreme in a conversation on what's called divine and human agency. That's this idea that let's say you wanted to talk about the the formula or, or way that God saves humanity. What do humans do and what does God do? Right. And where does faith fit in there? And, and, you know, as some certain sectors of scholarship have tried to say, well, the Bible's all about divine agency. It's all about what God God does. And if that's true, then we do nothing. I mean, we are like like Lazarus or we're like Israel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. We're dead and he brings us to life. We do nothing. And so there's been this move to what I call pure divine agency, which means God does everything and we do nothing. And then what does faith mean? And right. then some scholars have said, well, it must mean the faithfulness of God or the faithfulness of Christ. And it leaves almost no room for human agency right? and, and human faith. And I just thought, okay, is that true? So what I did was I, I undertook a, a really deep study of Paul, but also the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament used by the apostles and Jewish literature at the time of Jesus, Greco-Roman literature at the time of Jesus. And I started to see some interesting patterns develop and it's, you know, I wrote a, a you know, a, a whole book on it so I could say a lot, but I'll just say a couple of things you can follow up. <laughs> One of the things I noticed was um, Pistis uh, often appeared in the context of relationships of concord. So hmm. these are relationships where you have two people that enter into some agreement and there are two pieces to that puzzle. One piece is goodwill, meaning I want you to succeed, you want me to succeed. And the other is obligation. In order for this to work, the synergy or whatever, you're going to need to do something for me and I'll do something for you. You see this a lot in military context where two Mm. nations make a treaty to fight against another nation, right? They have goodwill because I need you, you need me, and they have (laughs) obligation. And, and, And that is kind of the wider context for how we see the New Testament use of pistis language. Um, and so just to give an example, um, from Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live by pistis, by faith, uh, is in the son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see this relational orientation to pistis, right. which is about mutuality, kind of, uh, uh, being invested in each other in such a way that your fates are kind of tethered. Right. And that seemed to me a more relational orientation to this language than the more kind of heady conceptual or belief oriented use of the language. I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think actually pistis is a really elastic word and we could talk yeah. more about that. But what I ended up seeing a lot in the New Testament is the New Testament writers like Paul ended up using faith language 
as a way of talking about what Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament Hebrew writers ten- tended to talk about in terms of covenant. Hmm. And as we know, covenant is all about relationship. Covenant right. is a two-way street in terms of being fully invested. And one of the big kind of aha moments for me was, oh, I think what ended up happening is for a variety of reasons, the New Testament writers like Paul used pistis as a way of talking about a covenantal relationship. And that changes how we look at human faith and human agency. Right. right. And and I think, you know, and maybe that's one end of the spectrum, right? Maybe we can talk about the other, which is, you know, if we talk about the divine agency, divine kind of taking care of everything, and, you know, at the at the fear of being reductionist, we can probably more easily point a finger, and correct me if I'm wrong, but things like Calvinistic traditions or Calvinistic theology that really harps on this pure divine agency. But at the fear, because of the fear of the opposite end of the spectrum, which is the human agency part, right? Like, what do humans do to actually be, if we use this relational term, what do humans do to be in relationship to that God? And I think that that's where that is a, there's a stickiness to it, right? There's a, well, how do I talk about the human agency without the divine agency? And can I talk about the divine agency without the human agency? So maybe think if you can kind of Give us the other end of the spectrum, right? What is that? Where has the conversation come through in talking about the human agency side? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I don't find scholars talking about this a whole lot in a way that kind of is comprehensive, but I find Old Testament scholars talk about this more because Hmm. they're talking about covenant. People like Walter Brueggemann, for example, is really good at this. John Golden Gay uh, and and people like Ellen Davis, they're all really good at this because they're they're looking at a relational God, spending time with his people, kind of negotiating might be the wrong word, but a lot of back and forth with people like Moses or people like Abraham, kind of bargaining, you know, but all within a relationship. (laughs) And that that should form and shape how we look at the covenantal God. But in terms of what humans do, um, the language of doing itself could be the problem because mm-hmm. uh, John Golden Gay yeah. wisely uses a marriage analogy right. when he's talking about the covenantal God of the Old Testament, uh, of the First Testament, as Golden Gay would say. Um, but he, he would say um, uh, obedience or, or um, kind of doing the right thing is – he would say it's not a condition of the covenant and yet it's still necessary. Yeah. And the reason the, that forces us into what's the difference and he doesn't answer that, but that's kind of the way a marriage works, right. right? You need to be fully invested and yet it's not, it's not this quantification thing where, okay, that's the 11th time you did that, Aaron. So now we have to get divorced. <laughs> like right. it's not a qu- quantifiable right. thing. It is really all about where are we at in this relationship? Are you actually invested? Do you actually care? And I yeah. tend to see human faith as that orientation pointed towards God. It's not quantified in terms of, okay, I got to get through 10 good works with Jesus today in order to still have this relationship. That's not how relationships work, especially relationships of love. Right. Um, those are that's, that's how business relationships work. And, and actually, Golden Gay says, um, that's why we view the covenant as a personal relationship and not a business relationship because he doesn't mm. quantify our works. So I think yeah. the problem is when we try to make a formula out of salvation, then we're going to misunderstand human agency. We're going to turn it into, I have to put 
this, I have to invest this amount into our mutual bank account. Um, right. That's not the way God works. And yet he says, I must have all of you, you know, it's funny in the old Testament, God will say things like, I will never leave you or forsake you, uh, which gives that sense of pure divine agency. But then he'll also yeah. say things like, you are not my, you are not my children. I'm right. not your God. Right. Yeah. Right. So how do you, and, and what I want to do with, with the use of faith language in the Bible, Old Testament and New, is to say both of those things are there in a pistis oriented relationship that's centered on Jesus. It's both endless and deep forgiveness, and it's also scolding and judgment, and it's also love and redemption, and it's also um, disciplining and, uh, and, and scolding. So I, I think yeah. it's all there, and we kind of have to accept the mess of that. Uh, that's, you know, in my own work, I think that's where, even though kind of our projects are different, as we were talking before the podcast, you know, yours being more biblical studies oriented, mine being more uh, theological studies or uh, kind of constructive theology, is where the mystics have provided a deep well for us. In that same sense that Golden Gate doesn't try to differentiate, or he does differentiate it, but he doesn't try to tell you and explain the difference. Right. It's because at some level, there is something happening here that is beyond language, that's beyond yes, uh, even a metaphor. A metaphor will never capture it, right? And so we can only best give language for what we might think faith to be, knowing it's incomplete and it's going to fail. And and I think maybe there's a reason, and I don't know if you've kind of come across this, but there's a reason why we don't like doing that, particularly with the word faith. Yeah. Right? Um, and it seems to me, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but it seems to me because we don't like not having the exact formula for how do I get into this covenant with God and therefore I know I'm okay. Yeah. I mean, going back to the marriage analogy, like how do I know that I'm in love with my wife or how do I know that I'm married? I can point to things like a ring or a ceremony, but in the moment, I mean, you're thinking about your relationship. You're thinking about, uh, you know, time matters. And in the flow of time, you know, it's messy. It's it's messy to know exactly where you're at with a relationship. Uh, At the same time, you can have great confidence because of the marriage. And at the same time, distance because you're going through a hard season or something like that. Um, And, and I think, you know, I I talk about Luther a lot in the book because Luther has been such a a focus of the language of faith and justification in church history. But I think scholars have often misunderstood Luther and maybe biblical scholars like me who don't, you know, don't read the sources carefully uh, (laughs) in the past. I I, I remedied that for this book, but, um, but, you know, people want to paint Luther as kind of the, champion of the doctrine of justification by faith. I think that's absolutely, that's actually wrong. Hmm. Um, yes, he All talks right. about justification by faith. That's pretty obvious, but Luther was out and out against any systematic theological structure that's going to take the focus off of Jesus. Hmm. And so if anyone wanted to summarize Luther's theology using a construct I think Luther himself would resist that. And I have a whole yeah. section on Luther in my book. I think um, actually the, the, the doctrine or the, the movement of participation in Christ fits Luther 
as well, if not better than some of the kind of post Luther yeah. Lutheran constructs of justification by faith. Because if you make it into a kind of philosophy that you could articulate without using the name Jesus, you know, saying it's by grace, it's by God's grace, it's by this, it's by that. Um, Luther would say you're getting away from the center and heart of it, which is mm. this deep yeah. relationship with Jesus. Um, you know, uh, one scholar calls it recumbency on Christ. Uh, and I love that. It's this idea of kind of, you know, being fully, fully kind of the trust fall, f- fully at home uh, <laughs> with Jesus. And so um, when you look at that from that perspective, um, I-, I think we have, we have, we're at our worst when we're studying Paul's theology of faith, when we try to make some sort of doctrinal system yeah. uh, that that yeah. is going to tie a nice, neat bow on something right. other than just a messy, but deeply gratifying relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Which is why people go to Paul... <laughs> All the time, right? It's it's. Yeah. I think even in a recent podcast, I said it's why we like to go to Paul and not to Jesus, because Paul seems at face value to give us the. I'm going to wrap this up nice and neat and tie it with the bow and hand it to you, and this is just it. This is the answer. But the more you get into Paul, the more you realize I, that's not really what he's trying to do, right? And I like what you said about Luther too, because. I think of the work from the Minerme school. I probably got that saying wrong. And Veli Mati Karkainen, like, and yep, how yep. they're trying to relook at Luther again to recognize that for 500 years or so, we've as Protestants have had this idea of this relationality being built on this on those terms, right, on those things that you mentioned. And yet, for 500 years, it seems we've misunderstood the person that we've built all that on. Right. Well, it matters that Luther wrote, Calvin wrote the Institutes, Luther wrote catechisms. Mm. And um, not that Calvin didn't write catechisms, but Luther was interested in forming, uh, forming kind of the church life. Um, And uh, Calvin was more of the kind of brainiac in terms of let's systematize this. Um, and Luther, I mean, he's famous for his table talk. He's famous for his like one-liners, right? He's famous <laughs> for his incendiary lectures. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, th- I think that's because his approach was different than Calvin. They, they could align on so many things, but his, his general approach was very different. Yeah. Maybe let's let's dive into Paul a little bit more. And um, sometimes I've noticed that my listeners kind of enjoy like, all right, let's grab a verse, right? Let's be a little expositional here. Um, sure. And maybe kind of walk through some of the ways that you see what's I think nowadays being really called relational positioning of faith, right? Through what Paul is doing and why that might look different than what we read in our presupposition of the text. Yeah, I don't know what theological. I don't know what that positioning thing is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do it my way. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's what you're saying in my language, okay. maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me give an example from Galatians. Um, you know, we often quickly turn to Galatians chapter two. Um, mm-hmm. You know, justification by faith. Uh, I want to actually turn to Galatians chapter three, which I feel like gives us some interesting material to work with. So Paul's talking about the flow of history and what we think of as salvation history. And he says in chapter three, when faith came, so he's talking about this pivotal moment in history. And 
Uh, what's strange about that passage, if you go back and read it, I think it's 323 and 325. Uh, what's strange about that passage is you're not expecting him to use the word faith there. You're expecting for him to use the word Jesus when Jesus yeah. came. Mm-hmm. And in a roundabout way, he's definitely talking about Jesus because if you look at the passage, you look at chapter four, he's talking about the you know pre, pre-Jesus era of history and then the Jesus era. Why does he use the word faith there then You know, when faith came? Scholars have really been confused about this. Some have said, well, it's referring to human faith. Maybe that's kind of the traditional view. The yeah. problem with that is at the beginning of chapter three, he was already talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith. So it seems like faith as an idea was already present. Right. A, th- a second reason why that would be not logical is then he's making our faith the kind of climax or apex of salvation history, which then seems kind of not like Paul to just put that all (laughs) on our shoulders. Yeah. So then some scholars have pushed to the opposite end and said, oh, it's referring, faith refers to not our faith, but the faithfulness of Christ. Right. Um, When the faithfulness of Christ came, well, the fact that he doesn't say when the faith of Christ came, he just says when faith came. It's going to lead you to wonder why he wasn't more clear about that. So I have a particular theory about this, Aaron, which I, I, I um, put in my book. Um, Jews understood that God gave this covenant in a certain in a certain package, and the package that He gave the covenant in is Torah, the, the works of the law. Yeah. So in the Old Testament, works was works of law, the things you did like the sacrifices and following all the stuff in Leviticus and Exodus, it wasn't about earning God's favor, but these were the practices that cultivated a relationship with God. Um, I think that's, that's, that's pretty widely accepted. Yeah. And one, and, and I think that Jews would have thought we are justified. We're saved by faith because already Habakkuk two, four says the righteous live by faith, right? Right. We're saved by faith through works of the law. We're saved by faith through works of the law. When Paul's debating with Jewish teachers and he's, you know, in the letter and he's kind of giving his view versus theirs, the classic way of looking at at that passage or discussion is his opponents were proclaiming salvation or justification by law. And Paul was proclaiming justification and salvation by faith. Right. That's not true because if you look at the Septuagint, if you look at texts like Sirach and all sorts of other stuff, Jews had already believed they were saved by pistis, by God's divine grace. Read the Old Testament. Um, So what's new is not the introduction of faith. What's new is the removal of works of the law. Mm, Yep. And yeah. so I explain it this way. Imagine that I am uh, I am a power company and you are a house. And uh, and you and I say to you, I can deliver you power. You say, "Great. Well, how am I going to do that?" You want the actual energy, which is this, you know, zippy stuff that moves. Right? How does it get to you? It gets to you through cables. So if you think about the Jewish covenant, the Old Testament, um, then you're going to think that pistis is the current right. and works of the law is the cable, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the vehicle mm-hmm. that transmits yeah. that. Yeah. And here comes Paul and he has this theological innovation and the innovation is, uh, what if I can deliver you the current without the cable? Hmm. It's unfathomable to us 
that that would ever be possible. Right. And yet we would say yes. <laughs> right. There would be no reason not to say yes. Right. And so I believe that pistis was Paul's way of talking about having an unmediated covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a paradox in what I just said. The paradox is it's unmediated, meaning unmediated by Torah. Right. And yet, if it's through Christ, it's mediated by Christ. Right. How can you have a mediator that's unmediated? Because he's the son of God. Because when you're talking to Jesus, you're talking to God. So yeah. I think the reason why Paul uses pistis in chapter three, when faith came, is because he's saying, we have this new possibility we never knew was, was going to be coming, that we can have a direct relationship with God, not mediated by works of the law, but directly through Jesus Christ. Yeah. And 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 that that the pistis ends up becoming the code word for that. Yeah, that's I love that and that's kind of you know one of maybe my critiques of um of Dunn of James Dunn um is that and, and others when it comes to faith is because oftentimes works of the law is replaced with another works of the law. It's just not called that, right? Yeah. So, you know, using the, the and I always say this word wrong because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the halakha, right? Like the actual like law, the, the kind of rule of living that was called the works of the law in much of our Christian tradition is replaced with a new, uh, a new uh, way of living or works of, of law in which I don't say that's like doing good deeds or, it's it's our beliefs, right? right? Right, right. We've replaced one set of you have to do these things in order to have this with another that says you have to believe these things in order to do this. And it seems to me that Paul is saying, no, you've got both things wrong, right? Like yeah. neither of those are, and and because of this, what you're what you're discussing. So my question for you then is, if if I understand you right, and that's kind of partially inputting my own work right into this, but. Yeah. I understand kind of what you're saying, right? Where does it start? If it doesn't start with divine agency and it doesn't start with human agency, right? If it doesn't start with God just doing all of his bits and that's great, or all of humans doing their bits and then God reacting to what humans have done, do we even need to find a starting place? What do we do with that? Yeah, I'm going to give you a probably unsatisfying answer here, Aaron, but I would say don't overthink it in the sense that <laughs> in the sense that um, in high school in, in Ashland, I got into all these deep discussions with my friends on predestination versus free will and all of that. I think there are some things we probably have to resolve in our own minds about God being in control and us needing to be responsible for our behavior and not say the devil made me do it. But at the end of the day, that can become a massive distraction to take us away from discipleship and, and true faith. Um, mm. I, you know, I, I, that's why I keep going back to the relational dynamic of it. Um, you know, God, you know, one of the ways it's been explained to me is, um, you know, Every day, every minute, we have to make a decision to continue to trust Jesus. Uh, I, I don't think the Bible is trying to, to convince us that there are these puppet strings uh, for every time I check my email or every time I, you know, e- you know, eat something at, at the pantry. 
Um, at the same time, we're meant to look back and see the breadcrumbs and signs of God's leading all along. So hmm. I want to see kind of a both and, and I think this is one of those moments where we comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. If you're one of these people who says, oh, I, God hasn't convicted me of that. I don't have to recycle. I don't have to take care of the earth. God hasn't convicted <laughs> me of that. Right. That's a God thing. He's going to have to do that. I would say, read your Bible and wise up and get it done. Um, yeah. That's a sense where <laughs> human agency has to step in and say, we destroyed right. the world and God's calling us to fix it. For those who are saying, um, you know, I've had a life of brokenness and difficulty. Uh, that's a moment where we can step in and say, God is with you. He's been leading you all along. He's present. So I think the Bible does give us paradox on this. It gives us paradox for a reason. Um, I was just talking with AJ in our podcast about the fact that God could have just revealed to us his full will in text message, mm -hmm. just downloading it all at once to each of us individually. He's very well capable of that. Why would he choose to use broken people, broken institutions, broken churches, broken temples, broken Israel, broken me? Why would he do that? Why would he take that risk? For some reason, he is a God that wants us to, yes, he's going to help us, but he wants us to help each other out too. Yeah. And so we need to, we need to have this strange mix of complete trust uh, in the God, uh, the God of providential care. And also, you know, listen to Paul when he says, march like a good soldier of light, take off the deeds of darkness. I mean, Paul's letters are full of exhortation. He must believe that human agency is important. And at the yeah. same time, he says, now I'm going to pray for you because God's in control. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, in a course that I'm actually teaching currently uh, on the person and work of Christ um, that I keep, you know, I, I keep pushing students to kind of recognize that paradox of why Christ, right? Why Jesus? And I think it's one of those questions that, of course, is a historic question, you know, in, in the fourth century, Nicene Creed, they're trying to discuss it. Irenaeus is going through it. But but all this kind of question of saying, in, in the same way that God could have just downloaded all this stuff to us, God was free to just forgive us. Yeah. Right. Redemption. There's nothing over God controlling God to say that he had to do it with death. He had to do it with Jesus. He had to do it with someone becoming him, becoming man. Right. Didn't have to do any of that. He chose to do that. And a lot of the reason, a lot of the times we never look to say, but why? Right. We always just look to the end result. Oh, because of that, I'm saved rather than saying, but why that way? Right. Yeah. Why these paradoxes of faith? Why this reality that we can't put a pin in it and say, this is it, I think is, is, a, is a deeper part of the question that should be pushing us forward, but oftentimes it can feel paralyzing for some, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I, think, I think part of the reason is um, the difference between, you know, classically wisdom and knowledge. I mean, um, you know, it, it's hard to look back at Genesis and, and say, God, you could have done this differently and prevented all of the bad stuff from happening. You know, <laughs> uh, there's a great, there's a great, albeit irreverent, stand-up bit by Ricky Gervais where he just reads through Genesis one through three and he comments on it. But huh. he's actually a very perceptive reader. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. He's actually very perceptive. Yes, really good questions, even though it's again very irreverent. He asks questions <laughs> like, "When that snake comes along, why doesn't God just show up and kick kick the snake, you know, in the face? Why does he right. let this play out?" 
And yeah. I think there's, there's, you know, going back to the language of faith, there's something about us doing what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. Mm. I mean, faith yeah. is this idea of, okay, Jesus, I don't know what's going on with this pandemic. I don't know what's going on with, um, you know, the economic losses and the racial issues, but um, I see something special in you. Uh, I, I, I hear the words of eternal life in this, in this scripture you've given us, I'm going to keep walking and, and, you know, AJ and I have been talking about this as well in our, in our kind of conversations, but, um, we we're confronted with different worldviews and different approaches to how to live your life. And Christians must be convinced that what Jesus offers us is better than any other way. I feel like when people leave the faith or when they, when they criticize Christianity and say, that's terrible, I'm done with that. What do they buy into instead? And I feel like usually it's nothing. <laughs> if if I, I, I kind of respect someone that converts from Christianity to Buddhism because at least they've chosen something. Hmm. They've said, okay, this is better than this. Right. Whereas when people say, I'm just leave Christianity and now I'm just gonna I don't know what, I'm wondering what they're what they're trading Christianity out for. And for me, I have all these questions. I don't have answers, and yet I know that that. I see light on this path and I don't see light on the other paths. Right. I think that's part of faith. Um, maybe a bit practical here, right? If we kind of take some of the headier conversation and we sure. kind of move it to, to a practical sense for kind of, even for those who are doing their everyday reading of Paul, I mean, hopefully not every day of just Paul, there's a lot of other good bits of the Bible too. Right. Um, what would you say for the next time that someone goes, all right, I'm, I'm going into engage with Paul yet again in Galatians, what to keep in mind, especially as it relates to this idea of faith, or even especially with Romans, what do we do with faith there? Yeah. I mean, I could say so many things, but something that I tell students a lot is, um, remember, these are letters. Paul is a real person writing to real people. And that's so hard for us to remember because it's packaged in this onion skin Bible, leather bound onion skin Bible. <laughs> and, you know, it's been around for thousands of years and it, you know, it feels like this alien religious text. But try to remember, take a text like Philippians. Paul is in prison. He probably yeah. has chains on his hands. Um, they just sent him materials, including probably things like, lotions to help with his wounds and food and maybe a blanket. Um, he's not writing as an ivory tower theologian with time and money on his hands. Right. He's writing as a Christian who's faced some harsh realities in life of hunger and thirst and being shipwrecked and lonely nights and some of his friends abandoning him. Maybe his family left him. We don't know. But yeah, I want you as you're reading Paul's letters to imagine he's writing these things in the midst of real life friends dying of diseases, um, people having babies, uh, people raising their kids, um, people going on vacation. Um, try to imagine the things he's saying in the context of everyday life when he says, rejoice at all times. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't live in Tahiti. He, you know, he, he's a man that spent a lot of time, you know, getting calluses on his feet, walking around the earth, doing ministry, and also what we think of as manual labor, blue-collar labor. Um, so as you're reading the letters and as you're thinking about the things Paul's saying, remember he's a real person with real problems, yeah. talking to people with real problems, 
we put all this distance between us and the ancient world because of we have computers and vaccines and, you know, um, but, but in so many ways, we're just like them, hopes and dreams, right. sorrows, grief. Um, I think if we try to do that, really try to imagine if that helps, I'm going to recommend a book series. This relates to our mutual friend, John Byron. There's a book series by InterVarsity oh. Press called A Week in the Life. And huh. there's a whole book series which tries to do fictional historicization of biblical contexts, especially in New yeah. Testament. So there's like A Week in the Life of Corinth, A Week in the Life of Rome. John Byron wrote A Week in the Life of a Slave. And it gives you fictional but very realistic pers- perspectives on their stories, right? L- what life would have been like in the time of Jesus and Paul. I find that so helpful just to put clothes on the people to what they ate, how they lived, entertainment, right. relationships, yeah. any way you can do that to to paint a realistic picture of what it was like to be a Christian and to be alive in the time of Jesus and Paul. Um, I think that helps us read our Bibles and helps us understand how they would have lived out faith. Yeah. And, and, and I love... I love that going way back to the beginning of our conversation and thinking about that more relational aspect of that, of the covenantal aspect of faith. And what I, what I find interesting too is that it's we weren't the first, right? I think sometimes when we hear this word faith, especially if you, if you grew up in church or around church or been in the church for any amount of time, there can almost be a sense that this word is a purely – purely Christian word. I mean, especially in the West and, and, and the United States, right? But when you do some of the work that you've done, that Teresa Morgan has done, and looking at kind of pistis and fides, and it's it's Greek and Roman worlds, you recognize that like this idea of faith isn't something that we came up with. And we said, okay, this is going to define this relationality. It's actually a co-opting of a word already used to say, well, this word kind of gets us to where we need to go, right? There's there's a couple anecdotes I want to share with you from the ancient world that can help kind of color our use of faith language. So one comes from an ancient Jewish philosopher named Ben Sira. In his works, he talks about um, using the language of pistis, faith. Uh, Cause he wrote in Greek, he talks, he says, he gives proverbial wisdom. He says, um, have pistis with your neighbor in their poverty so mm. that when they're, uh, when, when they strike it rich, they'll have pistis with you. <laughs> and it's very practical, but it's also very relational. Yeah. It's just good wisdom, right? You know, share yeah. in the burden, share in life share in pistis with your neighbor when they're poor and say, Hey, can I bring you a meal? Because who knows, they might strike it rich and then they're going to bring over, you know, right. a, a Rolls Royce for you or whatever, you know, <laughs> um, I'll give you another one. Um, Plutarch, uh, who was an interesting ancient uh, Greco-Roman writer. He wrote a really interesting essay called on talkativeness, de gorillatate, meaning huh. don't, don't talk too much. <laughs> and he gives, he gives an example from Odysseus, who's, you know, a famous legend and Odysseus, yeah. um, Odysseus's friends are captured by the Cyclops Polyphemus, and Polyphemus wants to know where Odysseus is, and he he threatens to torture them if they don't say any if they don't tell him. And then um, Plutarch says uh, they keep quiet and they keep their mouths shut, even though Polyphemus was going to gouge out their eyes with daggers because of their pistis for Odysseus. Huh. 
Um, and I feel like if we're reading the New Testament from that lens, um, it's not about works, but we are expected to cling on to Jesus for dear life. Um, yeah. and, and it doesn't require it, do, it, it doesn't privilege the person with more knowledge versus the privilege with person with less knowledge. You don't right. have to have a PhD in theology to have a tight grip on Jesus. Right. <laughs> uh, you need to just recognize this person uh, is keeping me alive. So Plutarch on podcasts, he'd be against That's it. That's right. Anti, anti-podcast Plutarch, right? Let's just do something on that. Uh, too much talking. <laughs> he, um, he wrote a lot. So he was kind of a hypocrite because he wrote a lot. <laughs> but he would say all of his stuff is is good. So, Well, you know, I like to believe our stuff is good, but I'm also well aware of how, how good, how not good my stuff can be. Um, DJ, it's been, uh, been wonderful, uh, having this conversation, going through some of Paul and talking about faith and hopefully expounding, I think more on this base level term that we all use that we've all kind of engaged with. And as you mentioned, but there's very little real writing on discussing this term in academic senses and our lay level senses usually are just regurgitative of the same things. Right. But before I let you go, any uh, two categories. First category, anything that you're working on or anything that you have to offer to our audience that they should go pick up. We got the podcast, if you want to tell everyone the podcast again, and anything else you may be working on. Yeah, definitely listen to and please uh, give us feedback on our um, podcast in Faith and Doubt with AJ Swoboda. Um, we, you know, we are finishing up our first series, which is about four or five podcasts uh, episodes. But uh, in terms of books and things, um, I published a book recently that um, I feel like uh, students of Christianity and New Testament studies would really uh, be interested in called a beginner's guide to new Testament studies, hmm. which is kind of my kind of tour guide to 13 of the most controversial issues in new Testament studies. So, um, check that out if you're interested. I feel like, uh, my Paul in the language of faith book is pretty, um, technical, but I, I offer a less technical discussion of Pauline theology and on, and other new Testament topics in my book, a beginner's guide to new Testament studies. So yeah, those would be the things I would, I would recommend. Second recommendations, anyone else's work or even just movies, podcasts, anything that you think you're just jiving with right now that you, that you like and want to share. Yeah, well, definitely, you know, two of my good friends, I actually live in Portland, Oregon, but I work uh, in Chicago. So two of my Chicago based friends that I recommend, one is Dennis Edwards, who teaches at North Park Seminary. He wrote a book called Might from the Margins. And it is uh, just a fantastic book about the Bible and justice and um, empowering people who live on the margins. Um, another one is by a friend of mine who I went to seminary with, Esau McCauley. You probably, uh, Aaron, know who that is. But yeah. uh, he wrote a book called Reading While Black. You may, uh, if you're listening, you may be the last person uh, <laughs> to read it if you've lived under a rock because it's uh, gone viral. But uh, I read it early on and um, just so powerful to think about what's going on in the world, to think about the Bible, to think about the experience of readers of the Bible. And um, I highly recommend it. It's an, it's an easy read in the sense that Esau is a great writer, heavy topic, of course, but reading yeah. while black. 
Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. It was a pleasure. Thanks for letting me nerd out a bit. Um, I always, I always try to have to calm myself down because I can feel it rising to the top <laughs> and I've got to push it back down. But thanks again for, for taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Mm-hmm.